With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I have back fan favorite James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison and Forrester, and he's the editor of the firm's excellent international anti-corruption newsletter, which appears monthly. Today, we take up topics from the November newsletter, including the Lambert guilty verdict and the consideration of having a guilty verdict for a conspiracy without the conviction of the underlying offense, revisions to the FCPA, corporate enforcement policy, CEO of former CEO of Braskin, indicted, and what do the SEC whistleblower numbers from 2019 mean for potential changes to the program? As always, it's a fascinating exploration with James. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and we have back the University of Michigan grad and fan favorite, James Kukios. James, first of all, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Always great to be here. James, uh, uh, or we're going to talk about two of the um, firm's most recent uh, international anti-corruption newsletters. Uh, the first one we're going to take on is the November letter, uh, newsletter rather. And I think there's uh, there was a lot of press about the Hoskins case that went to trial and uh, the DOJ got a guilty verdict. But there was another case as well, James. And I'd like you to really talk about that a little bit if we can. And that's the Lambert case. Sure. So that was a case um, that was tried actually very close to me here in Washington, D.C., actually in Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, And that case involved um, Mark Lambert, who is the former president of a company called Transport Logistics International. Uh, Their job, and it sounds like a very difficult job, was to transport nuclear materials. And the allegations there were that um, the company, including Lambert, paid bribes to a Russian official who um, worked at Russia's State Atomic Energy Corporation and paid bribes to get some of that those contracts to transport the nuclear materials. Um, there were, this has been going on for quite a while. The company itself resolved um, the matter in March 2018. The Russian official who was allegedly bribed um, pleaded guilty in August of 2015. Uh, And then Lambert was charged, did not admit guilt, and went to trial um, and was convicted um, on most of the counts against him following a jury trial in Greenbelt, Maryland, federal court on November 25th, 
2019. Verdict, I thought, was a little bit interesting. I think it's one we have seen uh, a similar one, but we had um, the jury coming back with not guilty findings on specific FCPA charges, but with a conviction for conspiracy to violate the uh, FCPA. I seem to remember that that was the situation involving Congressman William Jefferson about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, is is that type of uh, verdict usual, unusual, or or am I just completely misunderstanding things? <laughs> no, you're not. So the um, in um, Lambert, Lambert was charged with two conspiracy counts. One was a conspiracy to violate uh, FCPA and wire fraud, and then a separate conspiracy count to uh, for money laundering. Uh, and then he was also charged with substantive counts of FCPA. So he was actually convicted of the first conspiracy, the conspiracy to um, violate the FCPA to commit wire fraud, and then was uh, convicted of some FCPA substantive counts and acquitted of others. And then he was acquitted of the money laundering count. Um, That's not unusual. Um, Basically, the jury found that um, for whatever reason, whether uh, there was a lack of evidence, maybe it was a compromise that the government had not proved some of the FCPA violations, uh, but they proved others. And so it really, in many ways, was a consistent verdict because they've not only found that he conspired to violate the FCPA and uh, some overt acts were committed, uh, but they convicted on some of those FCPA substantive counts as well. Interestingly, the um, one of the FCPA counts that they acquitted on was also the basis of the money laundering count. Um, so they were consistent in that regard. It actually under federal law, though, it doesn't matter. A jury's verdict does not have to be consistent. Uh, the federal law recognizes that juries sometimes compromise on things. And so you can have, for example, a conviction on a conspiracy count, but acquittal on substantive counts because, especially a conspiracy case, they may have found another overt act was, was committed. Now, defense attorneys will often use that on. Um, appeal to say, look, this is inconsistent, therefore they were misled by X, Y, and Z. And instead, the prosecutors will, will say, no, no, this shows that the jury was carefully considering all the verdicts and they knew uh, counts and they knew how to separate one from the other. So um, the federal law, for the most part, says you can have certain inconsistencies within the verdict. The Congressman Jefferson case was, was a little interesting because there, um, the jury convicted on a multiple object conspiracy count that had both domestic and FCPA violations uh, in there. And then they acquitted on the substantive FCPA counts. Um, so some people say, you know, maybe he, you know, he was convicted of a conspiracy to commit the FCPA, but he just wasn't convicted on the substantive bribery counts. So long story short, it's not that unusual in any kind of conspiracy case. And this one is a little more regular, I think, than Congressman Jefferson, because the, the jury did find not only did Lambert conspire to violate the FCPA, but they found at least four times that he um, there were substantive uh, FCPA violations as well. James, how does uh, what's the effect on a unit such as the FCPA unit when you have a couple of uh, pretty ho- high-profile wins literally within a couple of weeks of each other? Is that really a boon to uh, uh, to the staff, or you guys just soldier on? <laughs> it is. I mean, it's obviously a big morale boost. I mean, for many, many years, there was a, I think, false narrative that the FCPA unit couldn't win these cases at trial. False, because I won two of them myself. Um, but we did have a couple, a string of bad luck there. And, and for a while, you know, for many years, 
there weren't a lot of individual cases. Um, and so this kind of narrative built up that the FCPA unit couldn't bring individual charges. And when they did, they lost them. Again, I think it was false. I won two of them. Um, but lately, you know, the the conviction rate in FCPA cases and related money laundering cases against an official uh, has been very high, I think 80% or more in the last couple of years. That is very consistent with cases that go to trial. Um, you know, most cases are obviously resolved by guilty pleas. The ones that go to trial are usually because there may be a, a, a an issue that the defense attorneys feel like they can really, um, they have a good shot at, and they often do. Uh, and so I think now the um, the conviction rate for FCPA cases is probably on par with other violations as well. But I think that gives a lot of um, confidence to the FCPA unit because it shows, look, guys, you know, we can win these. Many times people plead guilty because our evidence is so strong. And when we need to go to trial, we can and we will win at the same rate that everybody else does in other counts because we know how to do this. We have the evidence. Juries understand this. Uh, and we can be confident going forward. And you shouldn't feel bad about a loss because losses happen, even in the best of cases. Sometimes the uh, difficult cases go to trial and that happens, but you can be confident that, you know, we're going to, we're going to have uh, good evidence, good prosecutors, uh, juries are going to get this and we're going to, we're going to do a good job. So I think it is, uh, it, it is a confidence booster. Well, James, I always was taught that if you haven't lost at the courthouse, that means you haven't been to the courthouse. So <laughs> I think uh, there's a certain book out that uh, that says the same thing. I think a, a, a quote by uh, Mr. Comey that we can't properly um, repeat on a family broadcast like this, but yes. That's right. We're a PG podcast here. <laughs> James, we had a, uh, another uh, revision to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy uh, and that you guys reported on, uh, what if anything changed? Not much this time. It's been interesting. The uh, the FCPA corporate enforcement policy um, was first announced in November of 2017. In many ways, it was a continuation and refinement of the FCPA pilot program that had come out a couple of years earlier than that. I think one thing that's been very interesting is how how often DOJ has been willing to go back to that policy and amend it. Um, there's been some things in there that, that have either been controversial or ambiguous, uh, and I think they heard feedback from the business community and probably their own prosecutors that, hey, these things are causing issues. Uh, and, and to their credit, DOJ has been willing to go back and, and tweak those things. In March of 2019, there was a rather large tweak. Um, that was when DOJ changed the ephemeral messaging policy. Essentially, the original corporate enforcement um, policy had said had tried to discourage companies from allowing any use of Skype and uh, those kind of ephemeral messaging systems. And in March 2019, they 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 softened that. Um, in November of 2019, they came back and made I think relatively minor tweaks, um, but helpful tweaks to the corporate enforcement policy. And there were three of them. Uh, number one, uh, under the previous policy, in order to qualify for voluntary disclosure credit a company was required to disclose to DOJ all relevant facts known to it, uh, including all relevant facts about all individuals substantially involved in or responsible for the violation of law. This tweak in November 2019 said that the company has to disclose all relevant facts known to it at the time of disclosure. Um, and my guess is what was happening is there was probably some uh, dispute between prosecutors and, and companies about whether they knew a certain fact or not at the time of the disclosure. 
and basically what DOJ is saying is this, look, we understand that you know, when a, when a uh, whistleblower allegation comes in, when an internal audit finding comes in, you're not going to know all the facts. We don't expect you to know all the facts at that point, um, but we don't want that to be a deterrent for you to come in and report those to us. So come in and tell us what you know at the time. That's good and bad for companies. On the one hand, you know, um, that means that you have no excuse to wait. I think in prosecutors' eyes, they'll say you didn't need to do an internal investigation. You didn't need to complete an internal investigation because we said you didn't need to tell us all the facts, just what you knew at the time. Um, on the other hand, you know, that way it may be good for companies because they don't have to say, look, we didn't know about this right now. We found about that later and, and maybe have a little wiggle room there. Personally, I think that companies should kick the tires before they bring something into DOJ. I think there should be a more of a um, solid basis before you report something to DOJ. Otherwise, on the DOJ side, they'll be overwhelmed with things. And on the company side, you may be reporting things that aren't issues, but open yourself up to a lot of scrutiny. So I think overall, this is a good um, tweak in terms of clarifying um, what the expectations are, but I think the actual application could be both positive and negative for companies. Um, the second change that happened in November 2019 is uh, uh, under the previous policy, in order to receive full cooperation credit, a company was required to alert DOJ when the company is or should be aware of opportunities for DOJ to obtain relevant evidence not in the company's possession and not otherwise known to the department. The revised policy now just says that the company, if the company is aware of relevant evidence not in the company's possession, it needs to bring that to DOJ's attention. So they eliminated two things. Number one is they they eliminated the should be aware of, which I think is probably pretty good for companies because I imagine there's a lot of debate in certain cases between the prosecutors and the companies. Uh, look, you say you didn't know this, but you should have known this. Who are you kidding? Now it says you actually have to have known it. So I think that's a positive. Uh, before, though, uh, it used to say that companies had to also know that um, DOJ didn't know it before alerting them to it. They've eliminated that requirement. Now it's just if if you know something that DOJ doesn't have access to or the, uh, the company doesn't have access to, um, but DOJ can get it. For example, you spot an email, a uh, personal email address that you think is being used to um, communicate about bribery or you see a bank account um, held by somebody you believe to be an official that where illicit funds are going into, you need to go and bring that to DOJ's attention as soon as you know about it. It doesn't, doesn't matter if DOJ knows about it or not, you need to raise it. So that's the second tweak. And then third is a relatively minor, uh, deals with mergers and acquisitions. And it basically says that um, it clarifies that the policy will apply in the M&A context when an acquiring company uncovers through due diligence or, or integration efforts, so after the acquisition, misconduct by the merged or acquiring entity. So it's, a, it's another um, uh, effort by DOJ to try to encourage disclosures in the M&A context uh, by clarifying when uh, a, uh, an acquiring company will be able to get credit under the policy. So next up, James, we had a uh... I don't want to say a stunning announcement, but certainly one that got a lot of people's attention. And that was the former CEO of the Brazilian chemical company, Brascom, was indicted for FCPA uh, violations and money laundering offenses. And we were talking beforehand, uh, 
we could not think of another high, as high a profile CEO from as large or a larger company than other than perhaps Jack Stanley. And so I was just um, wanting to perhaps get your thoughts on uh, how, uh, not so much how this came about, but this just seems to me to be a, really a stunning announcement. And I suppose that's that's where, where I wanted to ask you. Sure. Yeah. No, look, I mean, I think every prosecutor, um, I, I don't want to say everyone, but I think most prosecutors kind of um, when you're building an investigation, when you're building a case, you try to work up as far the, up the ladder as you can. Oftentimes you start at the bottom, then you flip people up and you flip people up and you flip people up to try to get the people at top. So I think every prosecutor going into a corporate case, when you're looking for individuals as well, you're trying to see how far up the organization did this problem go and how far up do I have uh, admissible evidence where I can get a conviction for somebody up the top of the ladder. Uh, that book we were talking about earlier with the name that we can't pronounce uh, on this PG-rated podcast said that prosecutors have become scared uh, and now they just go for companies and don't go after individuals. But my experience was always you try to flip up, flip up, get to the top, see as far as you can. Now, oftentimes the fact of the matter is the evidence is be is better against you know the salesperson in the region who's paying the bribe to win the contract to make his or her uh, sales targets. And oftentimes, the evidence is best there, and it really doesn't go up any higher because it's more of a personally motivated thing. Um, very few cases can you actually find you know a CEO um, directly involved in bribery by giving orders or anything like that. Sometimes in in smaller companies. Um, that can happen. Obviously, for example, I prosecuted um, Joel Eskenazi, who was the owner of, Haiti, of um, Terra Telecommunications Miami, who was accused and convicted of paying bribes to win business for his telecom company. That was his own money. That was his own business. He was directly involved in the business. Not that surprising that you'd see that kind of evidence. But to go all the way up the chain to a CEO, that is a big deal. And that, I think, for many prosecutors, that would be kind of the, the gold ring. That's what you're, you're looking for. Um, so on the prosecution side, you know, this shows that they're able to do that. On the corporate side, this is a reminder that, you know, DOJ does, is targeting high-level executives, and it can happen. It can at least bring enough proof to convince a grand jury that there was probable cause to believe that somebody in the C-suite uh, committed an FCPA and money laundering violation. So it's just a good reminder again of, you know, DOJ's priorities um, about where they want to go in terms of individual prosecutions and that they, they actually do have the ability to do so. James, uh, I'd like to conclude our uh, conversation around the November newsletter by looking at or asking your thoughts on the uh, SEC annual whistleblower report that came out at the end or after the end of the SEC's fiscal year. And it showed another strong year for tips and awards and I really like to to use that information from that report to lead into the question about Chairman Clayton's um, uh, earlier attempts in 2019 to change the whistleblower program. Do you think the robustness of the SEC program and the uh, number of awards and tips that the SEC is receiving has caused him to perhaps rethink some of those positions or something else going on? Well, it, you know, it's interesting, Tom. So much of this de depends on perspective, right? So um, uh, when the SEC released this report, they said um, in fiscal year 2019, the Office of the Whistleblower received the second largest ever number of whistleblower tips 
over 5,200, which marks a 74% increase since the program was started. Then you go to critics, um, some in Congress, for example, who say, okay, you know, the problem is you had a year over year, every year until now, the number of whistleblower tips has increased, and this year saw a dip. Uh, So it's all perspective. The SEC is saying this is the second highest ever, and the critics say, you know, this is a a dip and the first time that there hasn't been a positive number um, going up. So it's all kind of perspective. Um, The critics will say, some of them say, for example, Senator Brown, um, in a hearing with with, uh, Chairman Clayton, said that he thinks it's because Chairman Clayton was trying to cut back on awards that maybe there wasn't the same incentive for whistleblowers to come forward and report, and therefore uh, the SEC should abandon these efforts to try to reform the whistleblower award process. I think it's all a matter of perspective. From my perspective of the defense bar, and frankly, when I was at DOJ too, because I ran the um, the FCPA whistleblower email hotline, um, I think Dodd-Frank has made a huge impact. Um, I think one of the biggest impacts that it has made is there's now a uh, whistleblower bar that brings these complaints. Um, you know, they're still hoping to get big money for their clients. And I think they're going to continue to do that, even if there is some reform um, that may, you know, rationalize or give SEC a little bit more discretion in whistleblower awards. It's still a lot of money out there. Uh, there's still a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money from this. And so I think, you know, is it going to affect things at the margins? Maybe. Uh, but I think Dodd-Frank has made a really uh, a tremendous impact on whistleblowing in the FCPA space and other um, securities um, fraud space. So I think, look, whether they change it or not, I think that is a trend that is going to continue. There's still going to be whistleblower attorneys. There's still going to be whistleblowers looking for money. Uh, and this is still going to happen. Whether there are small changes or not around the margins, this is a, a law that has really had a major impact in terms of whistleblowing. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, uh, but I wanted to thank you, and I look forward to discussing the December newsletter. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I link to the Morrison and Forrester November International Anti-Corruption Newsletter in the show notes, so if you want more information, check it out. Thanks again for listening this week, and I hope you'll join me again next week where I have part two of my exploration with James as we take up International Anti-Corruption Newsletter. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.